Big clothing brands face a boycott in China and a hit to their share prices after voicing concerns over the use of forced labour in the cotton industry in the Xinjiang province. Is there an acceptable price for brands to pay for trying to do the right thing? And our oddball emu of a New York correspondent asks if authenticity matters. We'll also ponder why the left and right in the UK remain at loggerheads over the union flag and pose some rather vexing vexillogical questions. And the presses are positively piping hot with two new editions from Monocle magazine and from Comfect. We'll be giving you a sneak peek under the covers. All that coming up right here on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and a very warm welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It's Friday the 26th of March. I'm joined here in studio by Andrew Tuck, Monocle's editor-in-chief and the captain of the good ship Monocle 24, Tom Edwards, complete with a rather fetching sailor's outfit and a bicorn hat. What a lovely look today. Um, Andrew, it's been a bump a few weeks, uh, but Saturday means one thing for the newsletter faithful, and that's the subject of your column. Are you allowed to give us a sneaky preview of what you'll be discussing tomorrow? Well, I think uh, everybody would be glad at the pain and misery of the last few weeks, which has been enjoyable to express and explain, uh, is, is, is going to be over. So it's in a more cheerful and heartening space. Um, it's looking at the world of film, actually. So it's about Sophia Loren and it's about Minari and it's about subtitles and it's about things that cheer you up and it's about uh, drugs and prostitution and uh, why I don't think I'll be entering either trade. Interesting. Well, they are things that cheer me up, so that's a, that's a keen observation. Uh, Tom, you've uh, this week ridden the rough seas of radio, listed from keel to stern, and helmed your team through doldrums and tantrums. But how does an intrepid stevedore of such stories relax at the weekends? Uh, not listening to any pirate radio, Josh, oh, in case very you were good. I love what you've done wondering. Um, you know, the usual downtime, out and about, fresh air. Um, although I may be more of a land lubber than an able seaman uh, I like to get outdoors <laughs> and the mutinous... no sniggering no sniggering at the back end <laughs> and the mutinous children what of them they probably will be made to walk the plank can you threaten to keel haul your own children on, on radio probably not so I won't ok well you definitely didn't do that for legal reasons and moving swiftly <laughs> on uh, we're going to start today with Dana Thomas who joined the Globalist programme earlier today to discuss a rather live issue why leading apparel brands such as H&M and Nike are under fire in China over comments related relating to cotton production in the Xinjiang province. Here's Dana on the row and how it could impact the global supply of cotton and manufacturing more generally in the future. At very first, when the news broke, they sort of said, this isn't us, this isn't our problem, we have nothing to do with this. But then the more they dug into their supply chains, because they obviously had some internal meetings saying, "Can we? Are, should we be making these statements? Are we sure about this? Because the supply chain is so opaque and none, nothing is more opaque than cotton. It's really hard to trace where your cotton comes from. They dug down and they found that, in fact, yes, some of their cotton was coming from there. So they immediately switched it up to India, the United States. You know, they're, these are, those are the three big countries that, that produce cotton. It's China, India and the United States. And so they were able to change it without disrupting too much their supply chain. And some of them put out some statements last fall, like six, eight months ago, H&M and Nike, among them saying, you know what, we're not we're just not OK with this. So we're going to pull out and and, you know, you all got to get your house in order. Uh, Dana Thomas speaking there. Um, Tom, I'm going to start with you. Uh, we've seen a lot of fallout from this topic and uh, it's a pretty live story, as I said. But 
is it the case that provenance is beginning to matter in a way that we haven't really discussed before? People, end users, are tallying up the price of fast fashion and realising that some things made in some places maybe have a higher price tag than uh, than we realise. Yeah, I think so. And it's, it's interesting that actually over the last year, I think because people have been unable to go out um, and there's been this refocusing, hasn't there, on trying to um, reshore or localise supply chains, it's, it's opened up the whole discussion about it in a way that I think has accelerated. This was happening before, no, no question, but it's accelerated that, that, that process. And I think brands now have to make these calculations rather carefully. You know, do you jeopardise um, a huge and potentially, you know, your, your fastest growing market? And for H&M, I think I'm right in saying they're probably the, the second largest um, sort of apparel company in the world. It, it, it can be directly uh, negative to, to, to challenge a market in this way. And we've seen that actually the Chinese have been very aggressive. They've now started to promote the cotton from this region in a very sort of um, explicitly sort of patriotic way uh, to sort of defend themselves against what they claim to be misleading uh, reports from some of these brands. Um, but consumers, I think, simply are not going to buy greenwashing they're not going to buy empty rhetoric they want to see substance and i think where brands where these kinds of um production problems are flagged to brands they have to be more demonstrative in their behavior so whilst i'm sure they have to balance up the the economic impact of the decisions i think it's going to be much more difficult going forwards for them to avoid these kinds of confrontations and andrew at monocle we've nailed our colors to the mast about what we think about provenance but do you think consumers are chiming in a little bit more than just say magazines the press people who uh, procure cotton from certain places do you think um brands need to consider customer backlash as well as what nations say about what goes on well it's interesting what tom says because there is a i, I think there is a a divide in the consumer market. You, know, I, I guess the majority of people who are listening to the show or, or, or read Monocle, they do care about provenance and they're willing to pay a little bit more to know that you know, children didn't manufacture their, their T-shirt or that you know, the, the people who were paid to work in the factories were looked after and, and had you know, a, a good life to go home to. Those things matter to our audience. But you see here, we ha- we, we've had several kind of low-cost uh, fashion houses here in the UK who've got caught out with working at factories, even in the UK, which have terrible records on on labour laws, on safety, on minimum wage. And actually, everyone said, oh, their shares will fall, they'll be in trouble. They bounce through it in, in weeks because there is a there is a, a young demographic who is mostly motiv- motivated by the price of a product who actually they don't they don't really care to be honest. But in in other parts of the world these matter these issues are more important. And in the Nordics, where you know obviously H and M is based, they, they they are a little bit more hot on these issues. So you can imagine back home H and M would come under increasing pressure there if they didn't act on these issues. So it's it's complicated. And as Tom says, here's a situation where you 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 have to decide in which market you want to win because they've got 450 stores, I believe, or outlets in in China. They're all kind of being battered as we speak. You know, there's there's Burberry got caught up in it. There's Nike got caught up in it. There's Tommy Hilfiger got caught up in it. So all these brands are going to have a very difficult moment. But again, it's, it's you have to decide where you where 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 your friends are, where your audience are, and perhaps you can't be in both places and win. 
Um, and it's a story that we're going to be following across Monocle 24. But we're going to move swiftly on to the next item today. And it's time for our Friday postcard from New York City. And this week, Henry Rees Sheridan asks if the onus on authenticity is for real. This week, I read an interesting obituary in the New York Times. It was for an English photographer called David McCabe, who died in late February, aged 80. When McCabe was 20 years old and working for a photography studio in London, he was sent to New York for training. He liked the city so much that he stayed. It was 1960 and photographers were rock stars. McCabe did shoots for fashion magazines and worked as an assistant for famous art directors. Then in 1964, an artist called Andy Warhol asked McCabe to be his personal photographer. The contract would last one year. McCabe didn't know who Warhol was, but he took the gig anyway. And soon he was following Warhol around, taking thousands of photos of Warhol's glamorous life as an art world impresario. But why would Warhol hire a personal photographer? McCabe said that when he was hired, Warhol was best known as a commercial artist. He'd made window displays for the department store, Bergdorf Goodman. And Warhol wanted to be taken more seriously. To attain credibility, he wanted to have himself photographed with as many serious artists as possible. McCabe shot photos of Warhol with people like Salvador Dali and the architect Philip Johnson. He also shot the endless parties Warhol threw at the factory, his studio, in downtown Manhattan. In these photos, Warhol is depicted living an envious life surrounded by young, beautiful and talented people. Warhol's narcissistic project foreshadowed how young visual artists live today. An Instagram presence has become a professional requirement. Artists' feeds are often a mixture of actual art and the self-documentation of glamorous lifestyles. It's like they all contain a little David McCabe within them. I like to imagine an actual, shrunken David McCabe operating as a kind of homunculus in their heads. In fact, compared to the self-promotion that's part and parcel of a creative profession nowadays, Warhol's project was coy. He never released any of the photos that McCabe took of him. Instead, he would spend hours looking at the image contact sheets with a magnifying glass, sedulously studying how he had presented himself to the world. We are less than three months away from the New York mayoral election. And there still isn't a clear frontrunner in the race. A poll out this week puts fully half of likely Democratic voters as undecided. Among those who have decided, the frontrunner is Andrew Yang. Yang has led in most of the polls since he entered the race, which has put a massive target on his back. Very legitimate criticisms have been made of Yang. He's inexperienced in government and once suggested that a casino be built on Governor's Island, which would be prohibited by federal law. But one of the most potent strains of attack against Yang is also one of the slipperiest. It's that he's insufficiently in New York. As evidence of this, his opponents cite Yang's decision to move upstate for much of the pandemic. They say the move demonstrates a lack of commitment to the city. Yang has explained that a major reason for him leaving was to make life easier for his son, who has autism. 
but his move is still being brought up by his competitors, most recently by the candidate Eric Adams in a speech after Adams won the endorsement of one of the city's major unions. New Yorkers have an obsession with authenticity, scarcely found outside of the appraisal department at Christie's. By attacking the specific, observable move upstate, Yang's competitors are actually trying to convey to voters a vague but potent message. This guy doesn't pass the smell test of being a true New Yorker. I'll end on a weather report. As of this week, things feel springy and positive. The days are getting longer. The basketball courts are full again. I walk past the games being played between teenagers in my local parks, and I fantasise about doing one of those slam dunks that are so vigorous that the backboard smashes and the glass from the backboard rains down on both me and my vanquished opponents as I land. I have spent many happy hours watching YouTube compilations of such slam dunks. I've never actually done one, and I've come to accept that it's extremely unlikely I ever will. Maybe I should just pay someone to make a fake video of me doing one. The technology is almost certainly available. I'll show it to anybody who challenges my claim that I did a smashing slam dunk. Eventually, the fake story will become authentic. After all, no one talks about Andy Warhol's window displays anymore. That was Henry Reese Sheridan from New York City, flying the flag perhaps for the value of substance over style, or at least I think I've got that the right way round. On that point, earlier in the week here in the UK, a junior minister was derided for flying a union flag as a background prop during an interview on the BBC. Several Junior ministers, in fact, have done the same thing. As a result of the ensuing furore, the government has ended up committed to flying the flag atop all of its buildings every single day, in the words of the UK Culture Secretary, as a proud reminder of our history and the ties that bind us. This has apparently upset almost everyone in the country, <laughs> for one reason or another, uh, whatever their political stripe. Um, Andrew, I'll start with you. Why, do, why does the issue of flags flummox us so much? Well, it's strange, isn't it? Because you know, the, the flag should be a rallying point. It should be something that you, you see and you're proud of. And, and actually, for something like the Olympics, when you see it emblazoned on the, on the vest of a, a runner, you, 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 you feel proud that the person is wearing your, your, your national flag. But along the way in the UK, that flag has been taken on board by different groups across the years. Back in the 70s, the National Front used the flag very heavily and it became a bit too associated with the right. I think some people in the constituent parts of the UK have often felt that the flag, kind of somehow the Union Jack, uh, overrode you know, their, their, their own nation's flags, which obviously make, make up, up the Union flag. So again, there it becomes a, you know, a divisive issue. And we're at a point where people talk about the breakup of the union. And again, maybe that's another reason that they want to see this, this flag hoist high. But it shouldn't be that, that way. And in a way, if everybody just used it a bit more and, and made less of a fuss about it, it would, it would kind of ease all those tensions. So I, you know, I think it should be something you're proud of, but you're right, it has a few kind of right-wing connotations. And when people see it being banded around behind ministers, they wonder whether it's because they f see it as a, as a, 
as a rallying point for all or rather whether they see it as a way of underlining a particular form of conservative policies which is about you know good old rural Britannia. And Tom, uh, the flag can be as divisive as it can be, unifying as Andrew drew uh, careful attention to there. There is a difference between national identity and nationalism. Mm. Um, why do you think the flag's so contentious at this point? Is it something to do with our relationship with Europe? Maybe the fact that the Conservatives wanted to put the Union Jack on certain UK products, including vaccines and tests made here? Um, has it been politicised in a funny way, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there is... It, it's definitely been reshaped this discussion by Brexit because, you know, Andrew's right, it's like the, the St George Cross of England was very much this sort of nationalist symbol um, going back into the 70s and 80s. Um, and that sort of changed. People started to fly the flag when the football team did well and this kind of thing, and it, they sort of reappropriated it. I think the problem with the, the, the union flag is even though the Conservatives, I mean, they used to be called the Conservative and Unionist Party, and they've shed that part of their um, sort of their, their name, but they retain the commitment. It's the Brexiteer wing, I think, of the Tories who's really keen on it. And we saw all those, like, dunderheads wearing those Union Jack suits shouting through uh, <laughs> megaphones outside <laughs> Parliament for the last five years. And I think it, it just contributed to the sense of ennui. And I think the, the reason why the divide feels more stark now is that your sort of more metropolitan, left-leaning uh, Brit or, you know, anywhere in the UK... They feel a bit uneasy about it because it seems to represent this parting of the ways with, with with Europe. And you saw an equal number of dunderheads, by the way, in the blue shirt with the with the with the gold stars. Um, I think it's a real shame. And one thing that Andrew said that really struck me is this idea about it. It sort of loses its potential to be a unifying thing. It's quite touching to me because my one of my kids always says to me, "Look, Daddy, our land." When he sees that flag, and it's very innocent. It's quite that's quite like in America where you pledge allegiance literally to the flag, and it's very apolitical. The flag in the in the United States, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you can wear your your lapel pin with with equal freedom. Um, and I think we lose an innocent patriotic ease with it because it becomes politicised. But I do think that's been a problem with those very ostentatious markers of nationhood for as long as I can remember and a long way back before And Tom, that and Tom it becomes a bit of a test, doesn't it? Because I guess with the like, Labour politicians, they're all, they, I think the Tories like the fact that Labour politicians would find it either not necessary or a bit strange to have to you know, pose with the, with the flag. And for, for, for those on the right, that's because they're, they're not proud of their nation. Whereas people on the left are like, but I'm just easy. I'm at ease with my my nationality and being part of something bigger. I don't need to wave the flag all the time. So each other kind of like is trying to do a bit of point scoring by the waving that flag. Well, it's funny. Even today, Alex Salmond, the formerly disgraced, now sort of partially rehabilitated ex-leader of the SNP, he's launched a new political party north of the border, and its logo is essentially a St Andrew's cross. And you know, it's very easy if you're a Welsh politician, again of any political stripe to proudly wear your, you know, your dragon or your whatever it might be. And again, north of the border, it's the same. And th this is one of the interesting things, actually, about the devolutionary schisms of the UK. And obviously, I'm England. I don't want to sound like a little Englander, but actually the English kind of don't have that facility. I don't think you'd find any politician, even a proud, quite right-wing Tory who would wear a St George cross I just think the optics would be all wrong so it's a funny imbalance actually amongst with it on the sort of internal UK power structure 
And if listeners are wondering which one's Tom's house is in Walthamstow, you can recognise <laughs> it by the St George's Cross in every single window. My white van is parked outside as well. Your white van outside. Uh, for our final talking point today, we're sticking our flag in the ground and discussing another big week for Monocle and our sister publication, Confect. Um, issue two of Confect magazine went to press this week and the April issue of Monocle is on newsstands now. Andrew, um, when do you sleep? Well, luckily, Confect is is not too much uh, to do with me. I kind of give some help in the background. You're uh, much more involved than than even I am, Josh. Thankfully, Sophie Grove is is marshalling that. But we do have quite a few issues going out. We have the entrepreneurs going out. And then you just see like a huge project like the Monocle um, Book of the Home somehow leaving the building looking very kind of well well turned out and poised so yeah it's it's a huge amount of work um and <laughs> mostly done in a very co- correct and orderly manner <laughs> <laughs> well it's good to have it's good to have a nice laugh together on friday but well i you know the the interesting thing about this as well is that there's a confidence there's a commitment to print and i think we've seen over lockdown and hopefully uh, a trend that will continue over the easing of the lockdown but a real good resonance with our readers and an idea that sitting down with a magazine getting a definitive global read on the world or even just having a lovely printed book that's all about the home has actually struck a few chords in a way that I don't know, maybe that's one of the slight unanticipated consequences of our readers having more time at home or more of a desire to see the outside world. Have you, have you noticed that? Look, when, when people can connect with print, and please take out your subscription because it's a bit challenging <laughs> with some, with some, uh, some of our, our key newsstands still shuttered, when people can connect with print or with these moments of, of analogue joy... I think it's important to people. It's good for your it's good for your heart and soul. There's something about the tactile experience that we've been denied a bit in the last year with the world of rubber gloves and hands sanitizers and things. So a, a physical thing in in your hand is a moment of joy, and it is it's also somehow it's interesting. You know, I have a, a an, an app that lets me see some other rival magazines uh, in a digital format. And I must say that I notice my experience of them is that I can get through someone else's magazine in a digital format in about 10 seconds. It's a, it's a very kind of like unengaging experience. You, you kind of flick through and you're done. You, you, you're, you, you, you take very little from it. Whereas something about print still demands of you some time and a, a, a bit of a... a an experience it gives you and and that and people still like that you know and and after this past year i think we're still looking at what we want to hold on to and what we want to let go of but i hope that people literally hold on to their their magazine experience going forward and tom you've had your rubber gloved hand on the control desk of late <laughs> twiddling the knobs with abandon i'm talking of course about Confect Corner, the audio digest and supplement for Confect magazine and i believe episode 2 is out imminently yeah, I think it's out now, so people should go and uh, check it out. And I think it's a really wonderful introduction to the world of Confect. If we've got a few laggards who are dragging their feet, haven't yet got their copy, now obviously what they should do is subscribe to the magazine and then subscribe to the podcast as well. But it is the audio equivalent of, I don't know, drawing a warm bath. Um, maybe it's partially hot water and partially honey and just easing yourself into it. Imagine, if you will, Sophie Grove, 
adding the bubble bath, Gillian Tobias wielding the, <laughs> wielding the Luther. Tom, I, the, I think you're getting too the, carried away now. No, but it's a really, it's just, a, it's a really joyous thing to listen to. Just people having a, a really lovely discussion. It is like you've wandered in to the best dinner party. Wandered you, into you've a wandered, bath. wandered into a bath with Gillian waving her Luther. <laughs> yeah, I see this. I don't know if I'm giving this the right sell. But listen, people. That's Jen, not Confect. That's a whole into, other magazine that you're thinking conf, of. Dive into com, Confect Corner and experience this for yourself, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Extraordinary <laughs> scenes. Extraordinary scenes. And if, if you hear a, a certain splashing uh, on the line, that's just Tom painting an, an audio picture of uh, a podcast, which is nothing like that description. Um, sadly, that's all the time we have on today's late edition. A big thank you to Andrew and Tom here in London, to all of our editors today, and to our studio managers, Louis Allen and Sam Impey. I'm Josh Fennett. Thank you very much for being with us, and have a wonderful weekend. 